I have I have here at my, my notes like uh, that I wanted to mix it up this morning. I didn't have this in mind when I wrote this that I wanted to mix it up this way. Um, I thought it'd be a little mix up like normally right here I would ask you to stand and we would read through the teaching text. Um, but we're going to get into the teaching text. We're actually going to go through all of Romans 12. To, um, but this is a lot larger than that type of a mix-up. So as a as a kind of impending flight, uh, emergency kind of came to bear on us, we um, decided that the best thing to do is to come back. And so I just thank you all for your grace and your business, and um, especially for Kate, uh, for... Zach, me, and Gray as they're just taking all of this on board, but especially as you've joined together to pray. So let me just continue in that theme. I'll pray and then, and then get right into this. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have made a way. You've made a way in the face of sin. You've made a way in the face of death. You make a way even like this so as I was texting with uh, Linnea DeWard this morning and night with, with Henry but um, so they're joining online uh, but just to even, even think like this brings back all these COVID memories and the we were together but apart and so what, what a fitting thing to be able to um, speak on community this morning so would you Jesus give us the grace to eat you as we're able in your name we pray Amen. So like I said, I, I thought I was we were going to mix it up because the plan following our Sabbath practice was to jump back into the gospel according to John. But as we begin this transition, Whitney gave me permission to offer up some specific work to you all over the coming weeks. And so on the docket for today is unity of love in an age of isolation. In the forthcoming weeks, talk about legacy and uh, some uh, some final words but today i hone in on this a community of love in an age of isolation on route to romans 12 here is just a word from the spiritual writer Allen. if you don't recognize that name by now uh henry Nowen was essentially this intellectual who was constantly seeking community he himself was a celibate man who was trying to find what did it look like to find community in the face of Jesus and those who call in his name. And eventually he got invited to this co-housing community that cared for disabled people called La Arch. And it was there where he's feeling present to people, but also isolated. And um, a few years before his death, he gave this uh, these lectures and it was compared to a book recently. But uh, this is from that. So Henry Nouwen has this to say on community. Community is, first of all, a quality of the it grows from the spiritual knowledge that we are all alive, not for ourselves, but for one another. Community is the fruit of our capacity to make the interests of others more important than our own. The question, therefore, is not how can we make community, but how can we develop and nurture giving hearts? It's that last question that kind of stirs something up in me. And if that touches down for you, anything like it for me, then you might be feeling a mixed bag of emotions. I know that when I came across that, there was intrigue, curiosity, like, hold on, there's a people in a place 
worst giving love as possible. And if I'm honest, like I've begun to taste that and, and cherish that at Gateway. But there's also things beyond intrigue and curiosity. There's a type of sadness and even a loneliness because that type of community also feel far off even when you are with people who you're somewhat known by. Because if I'm honest, and I would invite you to do the same, uh, community feel more like something that we find and then we slowly assimilate into, but never quite fully into. We, we assimilate, but we're just like a component part. We're still this individual, but we're not quite meshed. We're not in there. For now, in community at the end of ourselves, which is maybe why it feels so strange, because community starts in self-giving love. It is a quality of the heart. And in truth, authentic community is hard to find. And I think we're defined because of our desire for low-risk community. I don't know if we're actually looking for authentic community. And so just to set the stage for Romans 12, I just want to sound for a moment. And I want to break down some language around community. First is this term, authentic community. If you're taking notes, I don't know if, if we're able to get these up on the screen or not. They're... Uh, at thegatewaychurch.com and Sunday Liturgy, all that stuff. But but look there later. You can find those things later. But uh, the little thing is authentic community. What I mean when I say authentic community is this. A fellowship of people. And I know some of you, you hear fellowship and you like your spiritual eyes. So just stay with me. A fellowship of people willing to share their joys and sorrows and visible to each other as a gesture of hope. That's just beautiful. Is all that we have is offered up a gesture of hope. I don't know if you, you know the difference between hope and optimism. Optimism looks at circumstances of life and almost ignores it. it says, no, 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 it's going to be different. But hope, it looks at life as it really is. It takes a bite of humble pie at the table of reality. And in the face of all of that, it says, let's move through it. Authentic community has that end in mind, the capacity to move through the pain together. But low risk or pseudo community, language I'm picking up from M. Scott Peck, but pseudo community is dominated by tension. There's orderliness and there's superficial communication. It's really a search for similarities. And according to Peck, who's a psychiatrist by vocation, uh, interactions in a pseudo-community are, are really polite. Think of uh, the exchange of business cards or sports talk or whether I was chatting with somebody in Gateway and they were talking about how at business levels, like at business trips, they don't really care about sports, but the conversation, they're in sales, so people will engage and uh, they'll talk about it. He was sharing with me that he'll quickly have to look up on his computer what he even was, which I I relate to and thought was quite funny. Um, but pseudo-community interaction, it's the realm of opinions. And this happens because trust is shallow in a pseudo-community. And it's not a negative thing. It's just a thing. It is a stage in the journey of community formation. And it's shallow not because people are untrustworthy, but because they're untested. And all that means is that the circumstances of the relationships are unsure. See, there's things that happen in a community, a, a tragedy, something like COVID, that galvanizes a community. It forces you to come together in a way that you hadn't before. 
And but in a community, you don't necessarily have to do that. You don't have to step into risk of uncertainty. Members of pseudo communities mostly want to stay at the level ground of pleasantries. This is, I think, what is so funny to me is this is the quintessential Midwest nice. Like every everybody is nice, which I think at some level is sad because that means that it's really just on the surface. And I think our ache and our soul is for something deeper. I think we might say that we want or we desire community. Um, and, and perhaps you've even heard me talk about or another pastor or well say, uh, like community is in essence about common unity, mutual belonging and self-giving love. And you're like, yes, I want that. But what community does is it exposes you to risk. You say you want community, but you also don't want the risk. So it's this tension. And, and all that means is that folks like us want to be around other folks less. We want people in a similar stage of life. We want shared instinct and we want little to no drama. And I don't want to villainize that. Like, like attracts like, my, my best friend, his name's Jackson. And something we do together when, when is that we just exercise. I know that might sound like, that sounds like a terrible one to do with another. Um, but it's this shared interest. We like nerd out and we get, I don't know, like ridiculously sweaty, uncomfortably uh, sweaty. And then we think fondly about those moments, like nostalgia. Remember when we went home? Like like attracts the like. It's, there's nothing evil about that. But that is just the surface. There's an invitation to go deeper. Because that might scratch the surface at the itch of your the scratch the itch at the surface of your life but i think that there is a deeper desire a deeper ache for something heck in his work a different drum will go on to say this he says if we're going to use the word community meaningfully we must restrict it to a group of individuals who have learned how to communicate honestly with each other whose relationships go deeper than their mass of composure and develop some significant commitment to and hear this to reduce together, mourn together, and to delight in each other and the others condition their own. I don't know if you get this, but both Peck and Nowen, a psychiatrist and a spiritual writer, they pick up on the same theme when they talk about community. They pick up on the theme of self-giving love. And that is, for both of them, coming from different traditions with different expertise, that is the most meaningful part of community, which is interesting because self-giving is what the writers of the New Testament simply call agape, or in our vernacular, love. For love to exist, there must be a relationship home. That is, there can be no self-giving if there is no other. And it's precisely at the place that we are exposed. So community is inherent. The forthcoming season, as you all open yourselves up to, to new things and new chapters, that means risk. But that also means there's capacity to trust. There's openness. As we open ourselves up, it's like there's new space for trust to grow. It is a thing but when we open it also means there's a risk of the invasion of hurt both through but in all of that community assumes another 
And what's so curious is at the start of the pandemic, which, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I did not write this teaching thinking that I would be doing it virtually. So like to talk about the pandemic is, I, I get the irony in all of this. Um, but at the start of the pandemic, if you can allow yourself to conjure up the feelings of that experience, you may well recall like the, the general state of tension, this kind of, this relational tension, like maybe even in your own family, some people wanted to get together because of whatever reason, some people wanted to stay apart for whatever reason. So there was tension, but loneliness. And maybe that's just my memory of that season. Project that onto you. So um, get a neutral third party. Here is, uh, there is a response from this long form journalism art, like magazine called The Atlantic. What they did at the start of the pandemic was they launched a column called How to Build a Life. And I would commend it to you. It's actually, it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, Harvard professor Arthur Brooks monthly will walk readers through the emotional tension that we experience and how to move toward happiness. Now, will you agree with everything Brooke says? No. Uh, but will you find a lot of it helpful? I am at though. Arthur Brooks grew up in a Christian home. He kind of knows the framework. I don't know his faith today, but as he does this, his, his writing, it, it resonated. It resonated across the readership that now it's a mainstay column at the and at the start of this year in January, he wrote an article titled How We Learned to Be Lonely. And this is from reflections and surveying kind of the, the residue of the pandemic's relational tension and the overlapping loneliness. And in that article near the end, he asked this question, which kind of pierced my imagination. I went with you. He says this, if habitual loneliness is caused so much misery. Why aren't the habitual lonely taking greater steps to fight it? It's an interesting question. Um, in a word, you could say vulnerability. But there's more to be said, and so Brooks will go on to compare loneliness to those who are stuck in houselessness and poverty is there's some patterns that they share there's barriers to getting up. but in the midst of all of those it is that one word it is ability you have to name where you are and often you need a third person to help you get unstuck the thing that you crave in loneliness is other people but the risk in loneliness is other people <laughs> So it's this, it's kind of like a county too. But here you find yourselves on a Sunday morning. If you look to your left and to your right, behind you, like you can actually do that, but um, the, these people have the potential to be authentic community. But even in this space, we're not exempt from loneliness. Because the truth is, and I think you all well that you can step into a church you can attend regularly, you can be involved in a group, you can give, you can do all of that stuff, which the majority of you do, but you can still not experience authentic community. You may not be able to offer up your sorrows and joys as a signal of hope, as a, as a signpost of hope, because you're not sure if they'll be received. You, you, you're, 
your hurt may not have a relational home yet. But from what I know to be true about those who call the Gateway Church home, is that there can be a home, a relational home for your pain, relational home for your sorrow, a relational home for your joy, a place where you can become unstuck by God's grace and move forward in joy. See, to open ourselves to authentic community and move beyond the shell of loneliness is what we want. I mean, is this not the soul's ache for a, a, like a whole host of humanity? We who were separated from the divine by sin, God has entered into that, literally put on flesh so that we could be drawn back in. And when the New Testament starts talking about this, this should blow our minds because it says that God took on flesh, made his dwelling among us, and then came so close to us as to be in us through the Spirit. Just this, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the community of eternal love, in and with us this feels like madness to even talk about this like i don't know if we should just all prostrate before the lord and like i don't know what this brings up in you but i'm sitting a, like in a room by myself staring at you through a computer screen there's something in it that says i am made for this i am made to be connected to you and you to me and you to one another like we are made for connection and community and i think the appropriate thing to call that is love so what i want to do for the remainder of our time is i want to just walk through romans 12 uh, because it, it's going going to offer us a road map for community if you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way there. It would actually be super helpful if you took them out and just noticed the text as I walk us through. Um, Romans 12, and Romans as a whole, if you're unfamiliar with it, provided one, if not like the clearest glimpse into Christ-centered community in the New Testament. And Romans is far more than a theological treaty. Romans is thoroughly pastoral because Paul is dealing with church in crisis. There's these little house churches in Rome, and there's this identity crisis taking place of those who are Gentile and those who want to be Jewish, and there's people who are telling Jewish customs, and they're exalting themselves over, and then there's like this kind of feud that's taking place. And so Paul wants to remind them that there is another way forward. It was the way before, and it's the way ahead, and it is the way right now, and it is the way of Jesus. And so to God's people in Rome, and I would say to God's people in the Seratorium, or wherever you find yourself this morning, would you, as you're able, receive God's Word? And so I'm going to read through the entirety of Romans 12. I'm going to offer some commentary along the way, and then I'm just going to end with a few practical things that I want to invite us into before I, I don't know, leave on this call, and, uh, and then we respond in the bread and the cup. So Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Just stop right there. When Paul searches for a word to describe God's intervention in human history, do you notice the word that he pulls on? It's mercy. Mercy is the thing. It's all there in front of it, and it's mercy. 
in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to that this is your true and proper worship. So it's so interesting. We can internalize that as in in view of our ourselves, like our individuals, but this is to the brothers and sisters. This is to a church community. So it is a, a, a unified offering. In other words, the patterns and practices of our community life is what Paul's talking about here. And so he says in response to that, in verse 2, he goes on, Therefore, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't live in a consumer vision or, or the American dream. Don't allow that to set the cadence of your life, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You will be able to test and approve what God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect will. We could just live right there, and I want to get through the rest of it, but I want us to make note of Paul's first work for the church, that it is a family. What's translated as brothers and sisters in the NIV is the Greek word adelphoi. Uh, this image is up for many of us. Like, I, I actually, fam, the family image is really uncomfortable for me because of my family of origin. I'm still trying to, I'm like learning to receive what that means. And I imagine many of you are as well. Because I, I moved away from my house when I was a teenager. I, I, and it was quite a relief to do so. And then came to Jesus at 20 years old. I, I actually was desperate for a family. I don't think I had that language then. But the church became that. In an awkward like men's group, uh, there was a guy who was like a big burly biker. Uh, and he had tattoos. So I don't know, we connected. And he's become one of my best friends still to this day. But it was in an awkward, pastel-colored church building that I found a stranger became a friend who became my family. And to this day, he is to me like a brother. It is not a stretch to think Paul is picking up here on Jesus' language in, in Mark chapter 4, where Jesus says, A true brothers and sisters, my family are those who do the will of God. You see, church, it is not our blood, it is not our land, it is not the soil we inhabit that defines who we are, but it is doing the will of God together. But Paul goes on. Verse 3, Paul says, For by grace... For by the grace given me, I say, every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Remember, this is a community in crisis of people who are actually doing this. They're thinking that they are better than the other. They're ranking themselves. He says this, instead of do that, give yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. In other words, humility. Humility is the core requirement for community. Humility allows us to think of ourselves le not less than appropriately. It allows us to come under so we might build up. Verse 4, just as each of us has one body with many members, you know, I, I have fingers and an elbow and like I, different component parts, but one body. So too in the church. Members do not all have the same function. Though in Christ we, though we, form one body, and each member belongs to all the same, excuse me, belongs to all the others. And so Paul now moves from, in second metaphor, he moves from 
family, to something more intimate than family, he says that we're actually co-mingled and connected as a body, joints, ligament, bones, t- like all of this. And so the, the, the point there is at the age five, we belong to one another. See, sometimes in church context, like, um, we can say, well, this person does X, therefore they have more value. And, and depending on your context, if you grew up in a that really values teaching, then the teacher has more value. If you grew up in a church that really valued worship, then the word has more value. If prayer was the thing, if prophecy was the thing, the, if hospitality was the thing, there's all ways of ranking it. But what Paul is saying, we all belong to one another. And so we all have a value. And he goes on to unpack this. He says in verse 6, we have different gifts. According to the grace given to each of us, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it's then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. See, Paul, he, he's saying whatever the need is, unity, that often informs the gift. So, so so often it's easy to think, I have this gift, and therefore where can I go so it can be switched? Which is, by the way, what I learned in a Christian institution to like do a spiritual gifts inventory to say, well, what do I have, and then what can I bring? And I want to go to a place where that can be fully expressed. And what I've begun to learn is that I don't say I'm not a, I don't have a pastoral spirit. I don't have a pastoral heart. I'll, I'll let Matt Crummy do that because he is open to people. So like, Matt, you do that. I'll do the teaching thing. That's such BS. The reality is, is that all of us are called based on the needs to attend to one another in love. Let's listen to how Paul fills this metaphor out. This is how we actually do this. Verse nine, love must be here. Don't put on a show. Give what you have, not what you have, not what you don't. Love must be sincere. Abhor or hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Just just imagine a place. Imagine a people who willfully bless one another. It's like if you receive something from someone, you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know. I, I like, I'm still struggling to receive that, but thank you. You did this for me. You want to honor you. Just to be in that type of place. That's like a totally different environment and ecosystem. That is what love does. It cultivates a piece of belonging. Verse 11. In all of that, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Which you're like, that's kind of a weird statement. What does that mean? Verse 12 explains. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. I, to my mind, and this has been shaped by Newton scholar Tim Gombis, I think all of those little imperatives, they come to their fullest expression in that last line. Practice hospitality. Uh, Rosario Perfield, she has this book radical, like where she talks about uh, radical ordinary hospitality. It's the, the gospel comes with a house key. And this means we can all do this. <laughs> like We can all have a time and a space where we open and receive people at our table. And this is such a counterintuitive move because it's easier now than ever to cut people off. It's easy to just ghost a church. I know this sounds kind of crazy and I, none of you would ever do this, but 
it's easy to just get up, leave, and never return. And and I know that a lot of our community that we we have like I still I didn't I thought I had experienced a lot of healing that took place in, in COVID, but I re, I saw somebody who had left Gateway recently and they walked right past me and didn't acknowledge me, but I didn't acknowledge them either. I was like, do I say something? Do I not say something? I didn't realize how deep those wounds had gone. Like I'm not talking about this as somebody who has got it all buttoned up, but I'm talking about this as somebody who is trying to put this into practice because I realize I still need this healing because I I, I need a place where the, there is like actual healing to be had and apparently love is the thing that can do this and a table is the platform where love can be extended because there's something about I don't know popcorn a pint a whole meal big small that like creates space and diffuses tension and so Paul puts it together like this, practice hospitality. Notice he doesn't say perfect hospitality or uh, do hospitality perfectly. He says, no, this it. That means you're going to get it wrong. So then try again and keep doing it until your muscle memory is such that you become a hospitable person. Or you could just say it this way, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. <laughs> You want to know how to practice hospitality? Why don't you see this? Blessing those who have cursed you. Uh, by the way, how does that feel? It, it doesn't feel good. As one writer that I love says it, he says, become a graveyard for hate. Let the venom and animus of others go further. Instead, see what Paul says in verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be seated. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do right in the eyes of everyone. Again, you are not island. You cannot, and I would say ought not, carry the weight of the world on your shoulders alone. Instead, in a posture of vulnerability, which ought, like looks kind of like this, like the church side hug it's like the awkward full frontal thing where you feel like type of posture that place that's where allow others in paul will kind of riff on this he says it this way he says if it is possible as far as it depends on you live at peace with everyone and i love that line as far as it depends on you there are some relationships where the hurt has been too deep and we like we need to keep a boundary in place and and if you're able to extend grace, God will give you that. If you're not where you are, not where you should be. Uh, stop shooting on yourself is how some people might say that. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In other words, don't take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. I, I This is... Let's just breath real quick, because this is a lot, and we're almost done with, with the chapter, but you have ever thought about getting back at someone? If you've ever like just milled over how you would give it to them, in person, oh, otherwise, or if you've like done it, it doesn't necessarily feel good. It's not a cathartic experience. 
it's not like you leave a moment refreshed by a friend. It almost wants you to do it more. It, I don't know. It's rather uncomfortable. And I, I'm speaking from experience here. Like, we, we say things like give them a good tongue lashing. How violent those words are. How, how aggressive that is. Paul essentially says, you don't have to. That's not who you are. You don't have to be that way. God will, God will deal with it. And he describes it, leave room for God's wrath. And that might be a statement. I just have one little side comment on this, and we'll keep going. Because it can be an awkward thing. Like, hold on, is, is God going to judge them? Well, yeah, who is God? Think about the fruit of the Spirit for a moment. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and joy, and peace, patience, and goodness forbearance you going to end with self-control but love joy peace patience goodness faithfulness gentleness, and self-control when you think about that that is the composite sketch of god D- did you hear in there wrath vengeance when you, when you think back to how god discloses god's self it says yahweh yahweh gracious and compassionate slow to anger abounding in love and kindness that is who god is and so what we can what we experience as wrath is really the shadow of God's love. God is for us, but when we come up to face with reality, like what we feel is the power and radiance of that love to the point where we're exposed. Like in the in the face of the community of eternal love, we're exposed in all of them. That is what Paul is talking about here. He says, allow God to expose the wrong you as far as it depends on you you live at peace with them because you've received peace therefore you can extend peace allow god to bring the one who purifies do not go any further but on the contrary if your enemy is hungry feed him if he's thirsty give him something to drink in doing this you will heap bird holes on their head and that's a weird line i wonder i have no idea if this is true but i what it brings to mind in me is that that throne room scene in in Elijah, or no um in isaiah 6 where where the where uh, isaiah is transported and he is like in the in the presence of the living god and he's a, a man of of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips and then the cherubim brings over the hole from uh like and purifies him i i just wonder if it's about purification rather than damnation i wonder if it's about outdoing them in love i could be totally wrong about that and that might be a like a totally missed link but that is beautiful for me to digest that in all of it in verse 21 we see it come close do not be overcome by evil but over evil with good in some sense, I feel like we should just like give stand up and give a round of applause to Paul in the Bible, but <laughs> um, I know that that's just a lot to digest. But to my mind, this is one of the most beautiful invitations in all of Scripture. It's one of the most thoroughly practical invitations, because I don't know if you caught this, Paul just assumes some stuff here. He assumes that, that we're going to be at one another's throat he assumes that we're going to carry some bitterness he assumes that we're going to have some tension with each other and then he just speak into it so how how church can we metabolize the wisdom of romans 12 well for that i just want to offer you two borrowed from henry now and in those lectures and that you can find those all in a book unity but first i'll say this 
And this is on language. We need to forgive one another for not being God. Hear that again. We need to forgive one another for not being God. See, the, the very first discipline of community is forgiveness. So what's super interesting is that when you decide in your heart to move toward community, that, that can be simply showing up on a Sunday or going to a group or getting a coffee or tea with somebody. When you decide toward community, when you go to that awkward moment, you and me, we, we carry expectations that we knowingly and unknowingly place on the other. In this, we're going to walk through a transition. And, and some of you, you have expectations that you're going to be hurt. But you might not be. What if this is a season that God brings healing? See, we, we all have these expectations and we bring them. And so the invitation, the place of those expectations is to forgive one another for not being we have to ask, like, is there a practice then that will orient us toward the Romans 12 of ideal? Uh, ideal, And the answer is yes. The, the practice is community because, remember, community requires another. Like, we actually need a relational home for those things. And so how can you practice forgiveness if there is not another something to forgive? And this might sound totally odd. But here's what this looks like in, like, I don't know, with some flesh on it. When you come to meet somebody, you can remind yourself that they're not God. And that might sound so silly, but in my experience, it frees you up to meet them where they are, not where they should be, or where you think they ought to be. It allows for you to meet a person all that they are and to bring to you their story rather than project your hurt onto them. This requires a lot of practice and a lot of awareness and I think that we can't get there and some of some of you are. Some of you are in the process of that. Some of us are surprised by moments when people walk past us in a parking lot. We realize we are only one step along a journey that we thought we were far along on. See, there's a different pointed this out to me this past week that um, forgiveness is a lot different than restoration. To forgive one another for not being God allows us to move into forgiveness and toward restoration. This is a discipline that we get to practice. But it's, it's odd, too, because we can idealize community. We can idealize it. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his reflections from actually living this out in an intentional community, uh, he, he names this tension. Just listen to this. Those who love the dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and official. He goes on to say something quite hard, but I think it's true. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and contentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. See, quite the thing to carry, the ideal of community. 
we will let one another down. I will let you down. I certainly have let many of you down. <laughs> I'm like, I like, well, I, I remember going off one day, he had texted me and I didn't text him back. And then he texted me again and I hadn't texted him back. And I'm, I'm being the person I do not want to be. And for him to extend forgiveness to me and for my felt experience to be that he harbors no bitterness. Like, this is what we do. We let each other down. We will inevitably do this. We will shlate. We'll forget to text. We'll say something wrong when we ought not say it at all. We'll, and, and sometimes it's none of that. Sometimes we're just annoying enough that you don't really want to be around us. That's the gift that we have to give because in that space, the invitation is to forgive us to forgive one another, to release us from the demands of idealism or optimism and know that we're not God. So the reality is that we all carry a burden or two. And simultaneously, we, we carry hope that God in Christ has made a way to release us from those burdens. This is why Romans is such a gift. It's just honest. And all those commands, Paul, again, he just assumes that we're going to be in tension, that we're going to move toward isolation. But instead, he says, no, you're, you're, you are like a body united in Christ. So lastly, I just want to say this. Attend to one another in love. Attend in love. I've recently been reading these works by some Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox folks, and they've been really interesting. I've been curious of union and how are we joined, uh, how do we join God in that regard? They talk a lot about the Trinity, and what I've begun to notice is just how often God attends to God. I mean, language might sound odd, but just think with me about Jesus' baptism. There's that moment where, you know, Jesus is, is like goes under the water, and there you have the incarnate Son, the Word from all eternity, put on flesh, saying yes to the Father in baptism, and then the Father from the heavens declaring, announcing the blessedness and belovedness of the Son, and then you have the Holy Spirit hovering over the whole scene. It's this beautiful moment of God attending to God. It's not not an isolated event. In in the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus brings up Peter, James, John. He brings up his, his, his people. And then in that moment, you have the Father announcing the Beloved over the incarnate Word, the Son. And this time, not just Jesus' flesh, but like transfigured Jesus, glorified. You have the Spirit present in the cloud just as the wilderness. I mean, from eternity past, Father, Son, Spirit have been attending to one another in love. And then we see it in on the pages of scriptures and we get to experience it in our body as we attend to one another in kind and it may be easier to do this by explaining the opposite so let me just have my have a try here as we come to a close i don't know if you've ever been trying to have a conversation with somebody but they keep looking at their phone the irony right now is i'm actually at my phone as i'm trying to like preach with you uh talk with you have whatever this thing is. <laughs> But have you ever had that moment? You're like trying to connect with somebody, or you have something important to say, and they're, I don't know, they like get a notification on their watch or something. How does that feel? I can't hear what you're saying, but I, knowing how communicative you all are, I imagine you're saying, oh, it feels terrible. It's just like it's a deep pain in the gut. Conversely, have you ever had some truly listen to you? 
where even if they say nothing, it's as though their gaze is affirmation enough. Enough. The technical term for this is feeling felt. <laughs> like like you you feel seen, you feel accepted, you feel received by them. To my mind, a community marked by forgiveness and a community that attends to one another in love is a community in which pain can find a relational home in which it can be held. And as we hold one another in that place, God does what God has done from eternity past. He announces beloved over us as we are hidden with God in Christ, hidden in that place of love. And God attends to us in that way. Unity is this. It is a relational home. And this does not all fall on a leadership team. It doesn't fall on a pastor or a group. It extends to all of us, brothers and sisters, held together by the love of God, evidenced in the life of the Spirit. That is where we're held. For some of you in this coming season, this will mean like opening yourself to receive. But for most of you in this community, it, it will mean like attending to one another by sharing. I think most of you are quite good, actually, at receiving. Um, and struggle to share. Struggle to get what's on the inside out. And part of that is just like disposition, temperament. But sometimes that's e it's just easier to veg out. It's easier to drag than it is to sit in something. But our place of pain, that is a portal for God's presence. He wants to bring healing. He wants to meet us. And I'm not saying like all of a sudden starting today, like after, like as you worship, like turn to your neighbor and start spilling your darkest secrets. Like actually don't do that. <laughs> That's too much. But with someone you trust, perhaps um, a counselor or in our, in our community, Zach, Zach Anderson or Josh DeWar, Crummy or Whitney or Gray Loveless, like the, the, just, just to name a few people, I imagine everybody in there, like they can be a place where you can risk trusting. Again, you'll, you'll find that little survey in your inbox today. Um, that'll help start the process. To be heard. We, we want to hear from you. We want to hear from you concerning everything that's happening in our church. But what I want us to leave with is that you have been heard. God will say this to the people who are crying out in their pain, that he heard their cry. That comes through in the clearest form and fashion when God takes up their cries, in our cries, into his body. When he allows our pain to become his own on the cross. Mm -hmm.